How many of you know what an aerogram letter is? Raise your hand. Well, these are ancient things. Uh, aerogram letters, there's a picture coming up for you. It's a really super thin blue page that you can write on the inside of it and on the bottom flap, and then you'd fold the flap up, fold it all together, lick the edges, and just stick it in the mail, and it would go to someone overseas. Well, when I was, uh, hopefully you put the address on there too. It's easier to get the recipient. When I was just a young lad, uh, the, uh, the people running the, the boys' ministry in my church decided that we were going to all become pen pals with missionary kids. And so they had a list of about a dozen names, and I found my name's Thomas. So I picked a boy who was about my age, his last name was Thomas. I figured we already had a connection. So I started writing Thomas. His name was Roger, and um, he lived in Tanzania. His family were missionaries there. And uh, I would get these aerogram letters. I would write to him. And uh, he and his sister were attending Rift Valley Academy at the time in uh, Kenya, a, a very famous school. A lot of missionary kids have gone there, ambassadors' kids and uh, politician kids and all that as well. It's a very highly respected school. And I thought it sounded pretty cool. Um, but over the years, uh, we kept writing. And, and my letters uh, were informative, tried to be funny, you know, uh, tried to be supportive and encouraging because I knew... Uh, they're living in these foreign countries away from family. Um, during that time, Roger's father actually contracted malaria and passed away, didn't have a chance to get home. And, and it was a bit sad. Over the years, uh, we stopped writing, I suppose, but I found out that Roger's mom, Gail, happened to be a bridesmaid for my mother at her wedding. What kind of connection is that? And then I... I um, Though I've never met Roger face-to-face, -face, never had a conversation with him, about 30 years after my correspondence with him, my wife and I were on a cruise to Alaska, and we met his mother, Gail, and his sister, Tanya, on the cruise ship. You know, it's interesting how God puts things together. It started off by just writing to encourage and become a part of someone's life overseas, and, and now we have this connection. And I, I found out throughout my career in ministry that God has of enlisting his people and putting them together and doing amazing things. It, it, we're all a part of his economy, his kingdom. We're on his team. And he calls us up. He puts us together to do some great things together. So Pastor Neil last week had us put Duplo together. One Duplo just doesn't amount to a whole lot. It can hurt your foot if you step on it at night. But put it together, you can see the tower we have behind me. We're going to leave this tower up just as a reminder that we all together can accomplish something great. Apart, we struggle. Together, we're amazing. We are continuing in the study of the book of uh, Philippians, and we're all the way to chapter 2 now. If you want to follow along, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, um, piece by piece by piece. Paul is writing to his friends. He started this church. And uh, now he's sitting in prison, and he's writing letters to encourage and to inform and to instruct the people in the city of Philippi. Uh, this city didn't last a long time. It's just rubble and ruins today. Uh, but at the time, it was a very uh, strategic thoroughfare, Roman colony. Verse 1. Paul writes... If there is any, therefore, any encouragement in Christ. And I'm going to change the word if to since. Because sometimes this word can be multiple, multiply used. And so I'm going to read it as since 
there is encouragement in Christ. And since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit and tendernesses of mercies, then fulfill my joy. Make it complete. What I, what I realize is that these verse 1s are attached to the verse 2s. And so each line, I see a connection that if you want comfort of love, well, then be like-minded. You want uh, encouragement in Christ? Well, let's have the same love. If you want fellowship of the Spirit, well, then be being one accord. If you want tendernesses and mercies, well, be of one mind. Uh, I like the literary techniques Paul uses, and he's going to keep, keep this kind of a theme throughout the book of Philippians. But when God, his Spirit calls us out of the world into his kingdom, this word uh, calling out is where we have taken the word ecclesia, meaning the called out ones, and made it into the word for church. The church is comprised of the called out ones. You have been called out of the world into God's kingdom. You are part of something new, something that God has fashioned and designed. Uh, we're, we're to be countercultural. The kingdom call is a call to be countercultural, to run contrary to the world's ways and values and priorities. And then it says we're called into a fellowship. Again, we, last week we talked about the word koinonia. You all know, I'm probably uh, just telling you something that you already know, but the original Bible was not written in English. And so we have to take some of the translated words that we have in English and go back to see, well, what could the, the more broader meaning be in the Greek or the Hebrew in the Old Testament or Aramaic in which it was written? This word, ekle, or sorry, the word for koinonia, it's, it's, a, it's a deep connectedness. And this is important because Paul trying to help the church to understand they're not just individuals sitting in pews or sitting around uh, listening or singing a song. We're actually interconnected because the Holy Spirit is in each one of us, pulling us together, helping us to work together, to strive together, to love one another. The koinonia goes beyond ethnic differences and cultural differences and political differences and economic differences. We're supposed to use our diverse gifts and our talents and personalities in a cooperative loving partnership, working together to fulfill Christ's mission. And the good thing is that we are actually partners with Jesus. He doesn't send us off on a mission. He says, come with me. I want to do something through you. I want to do something with you. It's always a joint effort with the Spirit of God and, and Jesus. We're his body, his hands, his feet. In verse 2, it talks about being one accord. Another way of saying one accord is being alike in soul or being co-spirited. You look at the person next to you. Just take a quick look there. You don't have to linger or anything. Just, you know, <laughs> don't point out anything that you see in their ear. Or... You are co-spirited with that person. You are alike in soul with that person. The, the relationship, the koinonia goes deep as the family of God. If you, if you come here and sit here alone, it's wrong. No one should just be alone because the Spirit draws us together as family. There should be no division. There should be no difference. There should be no differences in purposes or direction because we're serving the same Lord. We have the same Spirit. We have the same God. We have the same mission and purpose that God is giving us. Verse 3 tells us how to achieve this goal of being co-spirited in the like and soul and what might hinder us from achieving our calling. There's challenges that the church faces all the time because we like to bring our stuff with us into the church. Our bad memories, our criticisms, our 
anger, our frustrations and disappointment, and, and sometimes we bully, sometimes we're mad, sometimes we say stuff we don't really mean, or maybe we do mean it, but shouldn't have said it. <laughs> but we bring all that with us, right? And it, 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 it chips away at the unity, it chips away at loving one another. And Paul is saying, you can't afford to do that. You, you, you're, you can't afford to allow disunity and discord to work its way in. It says, let nothing be done through strife. And this word, it, it, again, it's this Greek word that uh, we say strife, but what it means is electioneering. Do you know what electioneering is? You see it every time a, a vote is about to come or an election is about to come. I promise if you elect me to do all these things. Electioneering happens in churches as well. Uh, partisanship, fractiousness, pushing oneself forward. Don't let anything, he says, in the church be done where you are just pushing yourself out in front to be noticed and to have accolades and to be uh, you know, on the stage trying to get attention. That's not what church is for. He talks about let nothing be done through strife or he uses the word vain glory. And there's a word that Paul uses, nowhere else used in the Bible, vainglory, it says kenodoxia. Doxia is the word for glory. When we say a doxology, that's glory. But this word that says your own glory, putting yourself forward, drawing attention to yourself, it's not what church is for. He's saying that, that groundless self-esteem and empty pride and self-conceit don't belong in the church. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us together with Christ in the middle. In the church, we are to leave self-promotion and arrogance and electioneering at the door. So if you're the kind of person that likes to always get your way, if you always like to have your opinion you know, followed every time, if you talk more than you listen, if you like to criticize everyone else so that your idea comes to the front, yeah, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> It's not what the church is for, he's saying. Paul's telling the believers that, that it's more important to, to esteem one another as better than ourselves, to, to have a lowly opinion of yourself. In the church, uh, if you do all those things, you're acting in opposition to the nature and the character of the body of Christ. So he's, he's telling his friends in Philippi, it's, it's, it's a, don't act like everyone around you. Like in the Roman government, in the Roman Empire, you, you had to show patronage to important people. You had to align yourself with important people. You had to push yourself out there to get noticed. And Paul's saying, no, that doesn't work that way in the church because it's about Christ. It's about Jesus, not about us. So in verse 3, he talks about in lowliness of mind or having a humble opinion of yourself. Let every person esteem others better than themselves. And in verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wow. We're just thinking about our highly individualistic, highly capitalistic societies. It's all about me. <laughs> How much money I can get, my investments, my accounts, my property, my, you know, how many cruises am I going to go on this year? I want all the experiences. You know, I was looking up in the, uh, on the internet today, and in the, in the United States of America with its capitalism on steroids, that now has 724 billionaires, and it has 19,000 millionaires. 
as of 2021. Uh, did you hear those numbers? It was 724 billionaires. And uh, I just thought, you know, what if even a little bit of their money was put towards relieving poverty in their own country, what would happen to society? What would happen to all the, the unrest and all of the, the threats and all of the rebellions and all the, the marches that are going on if a bit of the money was invested back into society rather than getting as much as possible? You know, spend a little bit less on space tourism and a little bit more on building schools and helping people get to college? What, what would, difference would it make? And so Paul is saying, don't just put all the interest on your own account and pad your own uh, life and get everything ready for your, your own retirement time. But you know what? We look to others. See where you can make a difference in their life. There's three hindrances that get in the way. Self-interest, my agenda, my ideas, my needs, there's self-promotion, where you have to be at the front. You have to have the attention. Your ideas have to always work. All of the things that you want to do come about, and you, you work your way. You do the politicking. You do the phone calls to make everything happen the way you want it to go. Self-promotion. Being a social media influencer. You know what that is, social media influencer, where I know you know what it means. Anyone who's under 50 should know what that means. <laughs> and had a lot of people older than that. Social media influence, and I read this on the internet, uh, not the internet, the news actually, uh, often, uh, so-and-so was doing this and they were a social media influencer going, what does that even mean? Well, it means that these people have come to the forefront, whether they're entertainers or musicians or athletes or politicians or just they do crazy stunts uh, just to get noticed. They're in, they, they have a following and they've got... 10,000 followers, or they got 50,000 followers, and now they are influencing everyone to dress like them, to think like them, to go to the places they've been, to use their product, to buy this thing. Sometimes it's, it's really helpful, like the ice bucket challenge for ALS. You know, that raised a lot of money, a lot of awareness. It was really good to influence people in the right way, but that's rare. <laughs> Today it's rare. The social media influencing is typically... Um, I don't know. Can I say a waste of time? Can I say that all those clothes that they want you to wear and products they want you to buy and political positions they want you to believe and to follow, really does it make a difference in your life? Who are these people anyway? I've read some stuff about some of these social media influencers that would make you turn them off for the rest of your life. Their, their lives are not backing up with their messages often. Do you want to be an influencer? Paul was an influencer. Influencer for good, right? His, his social media was his letters. He was writing to influence and impact the people, not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to Jesus Christ, the one who gives life, the Holy Spirit who directs and guides and protects God's people. Today, there's a huge increase in entitlement and self-importance. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's a challenge because, really... Are you really better than everyone else? Do you really deserve more than others deserve? Have you really worked harder than everyone else has worked and you get some perks that they shouldn't have? You know, over the years I've seen how fleeting fame can be, how fleeting wealth can be. 
comes and it goes. <laughs> it used to bother me. My mom used to say, well, it's just money. I'd go, yeah, I just don't have any of it, you know. <laughs> it'd be nice to be able to say that, oh, it's just money. <laughs> but over the years, I, you know, God has provided for me. I haven't had to seek the money. I haven't had to seek all these other things because God just says, you know what, follow me. Follow me. I remember one person saying, Tom, you, you have such a platform. I'm going, like, like what, are you, what are you talking about a platform? He says, no, you, all the stuff you've done and written and all that stuff. I'm going, I, I just go one step at a time. I just, where does God take me? And I just do what he asked me to do. I, I don't have a plan. I don't have a 10-year plan for my life and, and my future and my career. You know, selfish ambition is another thing that can really distract us from what God wants us to have in the church. Selfish ambition is okay when it's for Christ, but selfish ambition is always about self-promotion and, and getting your way and working your way up the ladder, stepping over other people, being the first in line, having FOMO, you know, fear being, uh, of missing out. I don't want to miss out. I've got to be there. I've got to be at everything. And Paul says there's an antidote to these three things, and it's curtail uh, the self-interest and self-promotion and self-ambition, you need to have self-awareness. You need to realize who you are in Christ, who God wants you to be. Uh, there's a study done, psychological study, about people's um, impression of, like, what, what, do I th- what do I think other people think about me? What is my reputation? And you know, 87% of the people, when asked what they thought their reputation was, were wrong. Really, we don't have any idea what other people think of us. We think we're projecting one kind of personality, and they're getting something quite different because they see through the stuff we're trying to put up. They see through the face of the facade and, and the things that we're acting like. Uh, they know the, they, they can see. They're pretty accurate. Actually, when the studies were done, those that were asked about the certain person, they were pretty accurate about who they really were on the inside. We're not fooling people. Self-awareness is... Like Psalm 139, verse 23, when David says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's humbling ourselves. It's examining ourselves. Are we causing division? Are we spreading criticism? Are we the ones who are disruptive? Or are we the ones that are gathering and and reconciling? Um, Helping one another come together. Have we repented of our own selfishness and self-interest? Do we realize that we need God's help just to get through the week sometimes in my relationship with my wife or with my kids or at the office? God, I need your help. I'm not doing so well. I'm overreacting. I'm being too harsh. I'm being too critical. God, work on me from the inside out. Another thing is keeping our focus not on us but on Jesus really can help keep us in the right direction. So here's some questions to ask yourself. If you want to be the kind of person Paul says should be helping in the church, here's a question. Do I have to be the first to answer the question or the first to give my opinion in a conversation? Do I spend time listening to others more than speaking to others? I speak for a living, and so I I try to have others talk more than me in a conversation just because I get tired of talking. I've but uh, some people, they never let you get a word in because they're just so busy telling me about themselves. Uh, am I grateful for what I have, my home, my friends, my family, my health? And do I show gratitude to others for what they do for me? Maybe, do I have a sense of entitlement? Sometimes I do. 
I know, it just creeps in there. Like, I want to get through the red light, or the light before it turns red. I, I want to get, you know, on the ferry. I want to get my spot before, get ahead of this person, quick, sneak, and then maybe I'll be the last one to get on. You know, it's like, there's sometimes, I just feel like I, maybe growing up poor does that. <laughs> when you don't have much, you just want to get whatever you can, but it's a problem for some of us. Do I have a, do I compliment others often? Do I show appreciation for everyone else's efforts around me? Do I give credit to other people for, for what happens uh, around me? <sighs> Do I pray for others? Did you spend a lot of time this week praying for other people, that God would bless them, that God would encourage them, that God would uh, keep them safe, that God would protect them? Did you spend time praying for your enemies and for your friends, for the poor, for the wealthy, for everyone in between? Praying for others gets our eyes off of ourselves, helps us to focus on God's goodness to other people. So why be humble? Why be gentle? Why be kind? What's the point? Like, because it reflects Jesus. Because it shows who's inside of us. When we get baptized, we're identifying with Christ. We're saying, I want to, I want to die to myself, and I want to be raised, and I want to be born again. I want to live for him. I want to draw attention to him. But when we're humble, we're also testifying to who lives inside of us. We're showing others that Jesus matters, that what he says is important to me. He showed us that the world's ways of self-promotion and selfish pride and selfish ambition, they don't accomplish what God desires. Christ was counter-cultural his whole life. He didn't go with the flow. He went against it. He showed that you don't have to promote yourself. He took his, the form of a servant. And Jesus' example in verse 5, it tells us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What did he do? Verse 6, it says, he was God, but he decided to let go of his godness. He gave up his status. He gave up his position. He gave up the honor, the reputation that comes with being God. He said, I'm going to let go of that, and I'm going to take on manness, humanness. I'm going to let go. He didn't align himself uh, with anyone he, he just, he came into a manger of straw in a barn. Can you get any lower than that? From heaven to a manger. That's what Jesus did. And he, he gave up his reputation. It says in verse 7, he made himself no reputation. He didn't position himself. He didn't uh, um, align himself with a particular rabbi. He didn't have degrees behind his name from notable schools. Wasn't independently wealthy. Didn't have much influence. Didn't have power. Yet he changed the world. 